Well, good morning again. Welcome to Missio Church. Uh, my name is Bernie. I'm one of the elders on staff here. And uh, right now we're going to open our Bibles to Psalm chapter 26. Um, we are continuing our series uh, through the end of this year through some uh, Psalms. And this morning we find ourselves Psalm chapter 26, looking at verses 1 through 12. Psalm 26, this is God's word. Of David, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocent and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my, wall, my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me, be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. Would you uh, just bow your heads and again um, pray with me? Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and we ask that you would um, aid and assist us and help us in this time. By your spirit, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts and minds to understand your word. And Father, I pray that your word would not return to you empty, but would accomplish um, the purpose for which you are giving it to us today. Glorify yourself. Glorify uh, yourself in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure some of you, perhaps many of you, are those people called cable cutters. Right, you've gotten rid of normal TV, cable TV, and you just have some streaming service. And so many of you might no longer uh, have the privilege of watching commercials. If that's you, I'm sorry, because there's a spectacular new commercial um, that iPhone has out, and I find it simply amusing. It's these different scenes where uh, people are apparently interacting on their phone, but it's being announced to the world around them. What One scene is a man uh, in his sweatsuit walking, power walking through the park, and he is announcing to his heart rate to every passerby. Uh, 151, now back down to 150. Uh, it's fabulous. And then it cuts to um, this office place, and these two women, these two friends apparently are texting each other, but they're telling their texts aloud in the midst of all their coworkers. And uh, the woman, woman says to the other woman, I love working with you, red heart emoji, pink heart emoji, yellow heart emoji. I love working with you, she replies back. Um, and then the reply comes, I hate Lee though, puke emoji. 
And then the response is puke emoji, while the camera focuses on a very stunned Lee who's sitting in the middle of these two women, hearing them say that they hate him, puke emoji. The commercial closes out with this woman on a megaphone in a crowded park announcing her full credit card information to anyone who would desire it. It's fabulous. The point Apple is communicating is this. Surely there are some things that you don't want to share with others, with anyone else, that you want to keep private and hidden, and supposedly they can do that. Few of us, I think, it's safe to say, would say, I have nothing to hide. I have nothing to keep private. Whether it's, you know, simply our financial accounts, maybe it's some sensitive health information, perhaps it's our browsing history from the internet over the past 10 years, private messages on Facebook or Twitter, um, words spoken in secret in our home or in an office at a workplace. There are all things, I think it's safe to say, that we hope no one ever has access to. We want to keep it private and hidden and secure. But unlike that impulse that I'm sure most of us have, David, in this passage, is confidently declaring, I have nothing to hide. What do I need an iPhone for? Right? I have nothing to hide. He's inviting God to come take a look at his phone, as it were, at his web history, to to look at the places he's been and the conversations he's had. He's saying, I have nothing to hide. Look at verse two with me. He says, prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. Prove me, try me, test me. Look at it all. Check it out. I've got nothing to hide. The question is, why is he asking God to look so intently at the details and so confidently at the details of his life? Well, here's the deal. He is claiming that he leads a blameless life, a life of unwavering trust in God. Look at verse 1. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Now, what I want to make clear here is that this integrity he's talking about doesn't mean absolute perfect sinlessness. What it does mean is wholeheartedness. That is, he's not holding back any portion himself from the supremacy of God and the sanctifying work of God in his life. It describes a day-to-day consistency of doing what is pleasing before the creator God. So David wants God to do a thorough audit on his life. And he asks for this investigation. He's inviting God into this investigation on the basis of his claim of wholeheartedness because He's asking God to help him. He's asking for God to rescue him. Look at verse one again. Vindicate me, O Lord. Vindicate me. 
Now, David is facing a situation where he is apparently being verbally assaulted by those around him. He's, he's being lied about. He's being mocked. He's being degraded. And so David asked the Lord to help him out of this situation, to rescue him from this. And then ultimately, in verse 11, but as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. He's asking for rescue. Uh, this broad sense of rescue. So he's praying for rescue from those who are attacking him, and ultimately he's praying for rescue from the fate of those people, the fate, the fate that they'll endure when the judgment of God comes. Rescue me from the, those people and rescue me from their fate, their judgment. And he prays all this on the basis of his blameless life. Look at, again, verse one, vindicate me, O Lord, for here's why you can vindicate me, Lord. Here's why you can rescue me. Here's why you can help me. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. And by the, end, by the time we get to the end of the psalm in verse 12, David stands assured. He is absolutely confident that God will indeed be gracious to him. He's convinced it's going to end well. Look at verse 12 with me. My foot stands on level ground, right? So he's not off balance. He is, he's got some secure footing under him. He's not unsure. And then it says, in the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. He's saying, it's all going to turn out okay, and I'm going to get back to praising you without concerns like I normally do. But the meat of this psalm, the, 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 the bulk of this psalm is taken up with the evidence to support this confident declaration. And the bulk of this psalm is bound up in two pieces of evidence he is, he's giving God to support his claim to integrity of life, blamelessness of life. So he said it demonstrates itself in two ways. First, it demonstrates itself in his aversion to the ways and the values of the wicked. He detests sinful things. Now, um, any of you that have any sort of knowledge of me know that I am a Syracuse fan, right? Um, fan in the word uh, fanatic, uh, rabid maybe, right? Uh, with me, it's not one of those uh, gentle, kind senses of support like, best switches out there today, Coach Babers. Good luck to you. Uh, that's, that's not the sort of fan I am. There is, uh, there is this actual personal delight that affects me mentally and bodily in watching and winning. And uh, with that, there is a, a palpable pain and suffering and angst when Syracuse loses. That, that's what fans are. That's what fans experience. They love to watch and enjoy their team. But I'm just going to throw this out there. Being a Syracuse fan means that I don't just love Bayheim and Babers and Coach Q. It means hating others. Uh, yeah, I said it. 
Some of you don't like it. That's okay. If you're a Syracuse fan, you despise Georgetown. Just the facts. If you're a Syracuse fan, you hate Pitt. You loathe Duke, right? If you're a fan, that just comes along with it, right? Love and hate. A fan loves and hate. And we see that here with David in this psalm. Look at verses four and five with me. Notice what he's declaring to God, this evidence of aversion to the wicked and their ways. He says, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. So he tells us about his aversion, his detesting of the ways of the wicked, and that's marked by both separation from them and hatred for the things that they involve themselves with. So separation and hatred. First, separation. Notice the verbs. I do not sit with them. I do not consort with them. I hate their gathering. I will not sit with them. Right? And I, I, I feel pretty comfortable guessing that maybe this sort of language makes some of us feel uncomfortable. We don't associate this type of language with being a part of the people of God, with being a, a Christian. Love? Of course. Acceptance? Certainly. Grace? Yes. But hate? Separation? Huh? See, but what we're talking about, it's not a personal disdain for these people, but it's a convictional posture that, towards all that they cherish, towards all that they practice, towards all that they promote with their lives. Right? It, it wasn't that they, they, they supported or backed a, a certain political um, candidate or even rooted for Georgetown or Pitt. These people were actively determined to undermine and overthrow God's order in the world. That was their, that was their driving purpose in life. And by divorcing himself from their presence, David is saying, I'm loyal to you, the rightful king. Because they're seeking to overthrow you. I'm not with them. I'm in support of you, O great king. So when we separate ourselves from things that God hates, from, from institutions and gatherings and people and things that deny or seek to undercut his rule or his reign, that's not unloving. But it in, instead demonstrates loyalty to the rightful king of kings. It demonstrates our love for him. So separation. There's probably another, another aspect to the separation. Uh, James Boyce suggested it's a separation based not on a sense of our being better, holier than thou, no, but of not being good enough to survive in such company. Uh, Paul warns the Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. It's a, a separation to thwart and stop assimilation into what they value and cherish and promote. 
to not to begin to think in a manner and understanding how easy that is to get caught up into. So separation, but aversion also demonstrates itself by hatred. See, hatred is bound up in true holiness. Godliness manifests itself more than just refraining from that which God forbids. That's right, not, not engaging in sin. But holiness is not defined by a peaceful existence with sin. It, holiness loathes and detests sin. It hates it. it. It can't stomach it. It finds it objectionable. So brother and sister, how can we live at ease while God's presence is simply forgotten? His holiness offended. His love scorned. We shouldn't be okay with that. Spurgeon wrote, as long as you and your sin are at peace, God and your soul must be at war. Brother and sister, have we grown comfortable with sin? Because David demonstrates that the godly have an aversion to the values of the wicked. Brother and sister, are you repulsed by sin? Have you separated yourself from its ugly presence and deadly influence? Or have we just become comfortable with our greed and cloaked it in language of the American dream? Have we cozied up with anger and bitterness and baptized it as strong political and social convictions? Have we embraced pride and, and, pride and simply rationalized it as, I just, I just know better? The godly have an aversion to the values of the wicked. But there's a, a second piece of evidence that David offers in support of this claim to blameless, blamelessness, integrity, in the hopes that God will help him in his hour of need here. And it's this, he highlights his affection for the Lord. Notice the word David uses to describe his delight in God. Look at verses six and seven with me. I wash my hands in innocent and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. David talks about his habit of going to the tabernacle, to that, that courtyard, that that tented place of meeting and offering a sacrifice. But instead of this being some uh, dry, kind of formal, dead ritual, this is a joyous celebration for David. He, there he's remembering God's salvation. He's remembering God's gracious election and he vocalizes his thanks. He, he recounts God's miraculous power throughout history. He narrates God's surprising care in his life and in the lives of his people. And notice that in contrast to his hatred for the assembly of the evildoers in verse 5, he declares his love for the gathering of God's people in verse 8. Look at it with me. Oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house. 
and the place where your glory dwells. So David relished in the fact that God chose to take up residence with his people. And there, at that tent, God's people could gather together to see God revealed in all, in all the symbols that filled the courtyard. They could be reminded of their, uh, of their acceptance and their forgiveness with God as the smoke rose from the altar. And that brought absolute joy to David's heart. See, so friend, this love, this delight, these affections that, that David had, they are the difference between those who are claimed by God and those who are not. Because Christianity is more than refraining from some objectionable behaviors. It's, it's more than abstaining from things on a, a so-called naughty list. It's more than just uh, doing the Ten Commandments. It is a taste for God and his mercies above all else that brings delight and joy and happiness in our, in our lives and our hearts. You see, the, the lives of some people, both regenerate and unregenerate, non-Christian and Christian, may sometimes look the same. There are people in the world who live pretty decent lives by all the uh, objective uh, you know, observable standards. But their motives and their loves are very different. Christians don't merely hate sin. They hate sin because of their overwhelming appreciation for, awe of, and satisfaction in God. See, godliness is marked by affection for the Lord. Friend, are, are we growing in love and appreciation for the Lord and his mercy? Is it evidenced in your conversations as it was a mark of David's speech, praising his, his, his deeds aloud? Is it a driving factor in the decisions you make, where to work, who to date, how to spend your time? Some of you might be concluding, I don't have that love. I, I want that sort, of, uh, those, that sort of respect, that I want those affections. Well, there's hope because David points us to how those things are stirred up in us. David claimed that, that he trusted in the Lord and delighted in him because he focused his mind on God's goodness. Look at verse 3. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. He walked in faithfulness because the steadfast love of the Lord was always in front of him, on his mind, before him. So you see, friend, seeing and hearing and meditating on God's gracious promises in his words, in his word, in the scriptures, allow us to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's how these affections are stirred up and how faithfulness is prompted. By seeing and hearing and meditating on his word, we taste and see that God is good. 
So attending to the preaching of the word on the Lord's Day like we're doing right now, reading the scriptures in the morning, gathering with other men and women throughout the week to discuss his word, that, that's not some new form of works righteousness that we promote, whereby if you do those things, then you're okay. No, it's something we encourage in our congregation, not because it makes you right with God, because but as we spend time in the scripture, we develop new affections and desires that replace older and, let's be honest, inferior loves. We see God's unchanging nature. We begin to realize that he is the one who has life in himself. We have our eyes open to the fact that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. We find that he blesses us in Christ with all spiritual blessings. So David said the godly have an aversion to the ways and values of the wicked and affections for the Lord. See, friend, brother and sister in Christ, such, a, such an aversion, such affections should be ours, and they should be ever increasing. Inevitably, things come up in our lives, and we turn to God, and we want to pray, God, graciously rescue me, help me, as David said, on the, on the basis of a blameless life that's the fruit of unwavering trust, God, rescue me, help me, on the basis of my integrity. When we're faced with difficult circumstances on our job, um, in our home, with our neighbors, with our coworkers, we cry out for help. As we think about the judgment of God, we cry out for rescue. As that great preacher Spurgeon noted, our integrity is not absolute, nor is it inherent in us. It is a work of grace in us, but it is marred by human infirmity, by our, by our sin day to day, week to week. We must therefore, he said, resort to the redeeming blood and to the throne of mercy, confessing that though we are saints among men, we must still bow as sinners before God. See, friend, we need to claim the life of another, the blameless life of another, because you and I do not measure up. But here is the good news, friend. Listen again to the gospel. We can confidently plead for God's help on the basis of Jesus aversion to wickedness and his affections for his father. On that basis, we can cry out to God to be vindicated, to be helped, to be rescued. And that is in fact why we close our prayer in Jesus' name. That's not some ritual tag that we add on at the end just because that sounds nice. We are basing our prayer on the blameless life, the integrity of Jesus. It's on the basis of his life that we are heard. It's on the basis of his life, his blamelessness, his integrity that the Lord answers our prayers. See, Jesus 
is the Psalm chapter one man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stood in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seat of scoffers, but his delight was in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditated day and night. So we can confidently seek God, cry out for help, seek his rescue and vindication on the basis of the blameless life of Jesus. As Peter tells us, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Or as Peter says, for our sake, the Father made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might actually have a blamelessness to claim, integrity to actually claim now, because his righteousness, his blamelessness, his integrity is transferred to us. And then we're freed to live for him without guilt, without fear, without shame. Friend, don't think that you can hate sin and and find joy in the Lord on your own efforts. Throw yourself on the mercy of God in Christ Jesus because it is on the basis of his blameless life that we can confidently cry out for God's help in this life and in the next. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word as um, cutting and as um, confrontational as it is at times. We are gracious that by your spirit you speak to us and convict us. Thank you for teaching us about what pleases you this morning what true godliness and holiness looks like. And now in light of this, may we build our lives on Christ, the solid rock. May we stand in him knowing that all other ground is unsecure, it's sinking sand. God, may we build our hope on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, his blameless life. And as we behold your glory, may we be transformed in holiness into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. We ask that you would do this in us and for us today and for the rest of our lives. And we pray this on the basis of, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.